0: Start out with. I still need to sleep. Me.
1: You
0: That's really? far enough. Thank you. Okay.
1: Oh.
0: Well, that really put me at ease. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I'm Suzanne and I'm an alcoholic. I'm and I'm a nervous wreck. You know, poor old Steve last night. He's just isn't he cool? He's a shyest little thing and he says something he's funny as do. And that's good, thank you. Um hope I don't knock it out. And he said to me, just real quietly, he said, Have you ever spoken to a large group? And I said, Well, the last time I spoke to uh I was thinking about that, last time I spoke to a large group, it's ninety seven, and it was uh we got to go to um Palm Springs. In California, and we spoke for the um, Dog on the Roof group, and it was a wonderful group. They had a they had a big uh, conference, Christmas type conference, and we went up there at a, at a camp, and oh, it was absolutely wonderful. And um, but then I thought I was okay, but I was nervous for that too. And I was okay if that was over and everything. And then I, then I began to think about the Buckeye Roundup, and I thought, oh my God. I'm coming to Cincinnati, the home of Venus flycrap and WKRP. I mean, you all don't know. I watch that all the time. They have all the reruns at home, and so I was I was pretty impressed with that, and getting a little nervous. And then I saw the program. Clancy is speaking at this meeting, and I thought, Oh my God! I never thought I'd have to speak at a place. Clancy talking. I mean, Clancy's like God. You know, he's come to Charleston, West Virginia, and he's spoken. And he's, in all sincerity, is a wonderful, wonderful uh, carrier of the message, and um, has I have always really enjoyed his talks, and uh, I feel like it's a real privilege, really, to be here as a part of this. And, it, and I got really nervous, but then last night, I saw the gong show, all this, and I thought, those people can get up here and do that. I can get up here and do this. Uh, so thank you for making me feel at home and at ease and you guys were hysterical. I love the girls with the little noses, the chicken noses. And those two guys with their hairy faces and blonde heads and boxer shorts. I mean that was did did everybody get to see that? That was really most I Even mean, you really missed something if you didn't get to see that. It was it was fabulous. And um I remember when I first got to AA that um um the big deal or the hard thing to do, and it was wonderful in that first year we had dances, and to go to dances and dance and not be drinking was was not easy. And uh, I remember um being uh, escorted to the floor with you know some old timer take you out on the floor and dance with you. and have starting to have fun sober is uh, and george talked had talked about that a lot last night, that having fun sober. Um, I've had uh, a wonderful. Um, journey in recovery and um, I'm one of those people oh I probably ought to tell you I love the way you announced your sobriety days that through the grace of God and the fellowship and um, wonderful sponsorship mostly by, by, by individuals of course and by the wonderful people and groups all the help I've got from from them. Uh, I've been sober since April eleventh, nineteen 1981. And I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> and I've been so impressed by um, Peggy's lead. She gave the most wonderful story. She's so funny. I just thought she was great. But boy, she had a big message squished in there in between the laughter with some really wonderful things and he talked about um, losing somebody in this program and um... there was a lady by the name of Betsy Ray who was my first sponsor and it's so ironic that she would be my first sponsor. This was long before I became ill, and she was a polio victim and uh, she was about ten years older than me and had been caught in that polio epidemic you know before we all got those little sugar cubes with the vaccine and everything uh, and the, the shots, and she was a wonderful woman, and she taught me so much she said, "You just cannot judge someone's insides by their outsides. People used to uh, initially feel sorry for for Betsy because she was in a wheelchair and um totally confined to uh, to a wheelchair, and she said that they could only see and At Monday, she got to know her the joy uh, uh, that was in her was just amazing, and she was such a wonderful sponsor, and we lost Betsy last year, and that's a real, real hard thing to go through, and I so identified with, with your story, and she, um she was so beautiful, she knew, she knew about six months before she died, she had lung cancer, and a terrible smoker, <clears throat> she smoked, 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 whole family did, <clears throat> excuse me, and but she knew about six months before she died that she was going to go. And she was so wonderful. She contacted everybody and told them she loved them and, and, and very gently told what was happening in her life and and that she just wanted to, you know, communicate how much she loved us. And, and so she made a beautiful transition. And um, then I had another experience in AA that was very much like what she talked about. There was a, a young woman, um, and her husband, they were like, he was, he was relatively young, I mean, his late 30s, and he, had, uh, contracted hepatitis C. And, uh, know, yeah, and he, Alex, got really sick, and with that, and he was hospitalized, and they had just had a baby maybe, uh, six months before. But the thing that, uh, we lost Alex. They couldn't, they tried to get him up for a, uh, liver transplant and just, we had, we lost him. And, but the people, the most wonderful thing about that was, and, Anne was his wife, and there were people with her constantly. 24 hours a day. He was in the hospital for a long time, and she had this child and a home, and, and an older child as well as this baby and um, there were people with her constantly and at the hospital there were people holding her hand all the time too and they just split up the duties well I'm going to take the child and I'll do, I'll do the I'll do the housekeeping and what do you want from the store, I mean she did nothing people were there to help her through everything and it was um, it was the most incredibly wonderful thing to watch you are not alone we are never alone and that just not only are we together at meetings but we were all, are always together and and people are there and this program will be there for you no matter what and I have so much confidence and, and I think occasionally, gee what if this happens I think I know who to call on there's always somebody in this program that can help me and that would be available and willing to help me and uh, to watch that, Anne said that her mother who lived in Florida called and said oh she said, I know you just feel so horrible being away from all your family and everything. And she said, oh no, Mom, I have my family right here. And God, what a wonderful thing that is. I'm so often so overwhelmed with the care and concern and love of people in this program. And uh, it's been dished dished out for me (laughs) uh, all over the place. When I first came to AA, I... um, I was uh, healthy. (laughs) Um, I was 34 and uh, healthy and looked pretty good and uh, was married to um, this really boring guy named Joe. (laughs) And um, we kind of fought a lot. and He drank a lot. I mean, he wasn't an alcoholic. And that's surprising. I learned later, he was not an alcoholic. uh, I was. But um, he drank a whole lot. And we drank together a whole lot and we were high school sweethearts. And um so we just kinda had to get married, you know. We went through that college and then we got married and I mean we didn't have to get married, but
1: <laughs> you know.
0: Um we we were on that track. And um he we both went to college and um went went to school in Memphis, Tennessee. I was, oh, by the way, I ought to backtrack. I was in Greenville, Mississippi at the time. My father had been, um, I was a Navy brat, and so we traveled everywhere, I mean, and we were at that time in, um, in the history of the services then, where you, you moved about every year and a half. So I was always the new kid, and always never felt at home, and, um. That, that has been, uh, a terrible problem, you know, from, was for me uh, all along. And he was, he was in the, uh, Navy for like 30 years. And he, had, he, the place that we ended up when he got out of the Navy was Greenville, Mississippi. We moved from Honolulu, Hawaii in the winter to Greenville, Mississippi. God was at a transition. I was in the sixth grade and I was chunky and I was again the new kid. And um so feeling so out of place. And this is little Mississippi. I mean it's little Greenville and not only was it in Little Greenville, but I was in the little Catholic school in Greenville. And uh interestingly enough they had white Catholic schools and black Catholic schools in Mississippi at that time and I thought I really couldn't quite reconcile that. I mean I wasn't from from the South so I wasn't hadn't been reared in that um prejudice. And so I didn't quite understand how the Catholic Church could, you know, sort of <laughs> reconcile that either. But they they did what they had to do, I guess, to get people get people to church and get people in a Catholic school. And that's where I met my uh, later to be husband, and we drank, and everybody drank, and um, that's what you did. I was 14, first time I took a drink, and I went over to the Brophy's house. They were transplanted Philadelphians. And they all spoke with this real Irish accent. And these are and they had like twelve kids, many of whom had been born and raised in Mississippi. But they all spoke with an Irish accent. <laughs> Not even an Irish accent with a draw, but it was an Irish accent. You know, like they talked in Philadelphia. It was really really unusual. And um you'd go over there at, at uh we'd go over at ten o'clock in the morning, and Mr. Brody was walking around with a uh picture of, of uh martinis. And that just never it seemed unusual that that's the way they were. Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Brophy would get mad and throw, if Mr. Brophy would not buy her a new dining room set, she'd just throw it down the steps. So he'd have to get her one. And um I mean these, these were my first friends. They were, you know, this is the family. And that's where I drank the first time we we'll just spend the night party there. I'm trying to get around to this. And um drank Purple Passion. And, um, which I remember when I talked in California, they all went, oh, like they had heard of it, I guess. Uh, but nobody else has ever heard of Purple Passion. It's it's, uh, it's um, vodka and grape juice. Lovely, lovely thing. Uh, I then graduated, after much practice of that, to something real sophisticated called bourbon and coke. And um, I never did learn how to drink. I when uh, I when I was 14, and this is honest to God truth. Again, okay, I was 20 years drinking. Every time I picked up a drink, I drank till I got drunk and threw up. That was my history with drinking. Never did I um, I never drank very much. I also couldn't hold my liquor. I mean, I couldn't drink very much, so it didn't take long to get me really drunk and really sick. And so, I mean, I wouldn't even really make it through the evening. Most people I knew. Drank too much, had horrible hangovers, threw up in the morning and stuff like that. I threw up from the beginning. Like that night, later that night, all night, and often the times the next morning. And uh just went back and forth the next day. I'd had such a good time. The night, <laughs> the night before. I mean, and, I mean, who knows, how can I have problems with step two? You know? <laughs> I wasn't crazy, you know, but you know when you have when you um do things like that, and that's that's been my that's been my um life just I'm going to get it right the next time, keep doing the same thing, expecting different results, and I learned that i that was in my life I was experiencing that living that and uh in drinking it that's what I did. If I could just eat bread or bread with butter. Or, um, what with the other things? Oh, if I, it was the Coke. The Coke is what was making me sick. All that syrup in there. If I could learn to drink it with water, which I hated, um, then maybe I, you know, I tried all those I tried switching, you know, to different things. I didn't like beer. Um, I just, I like those drinks with the little umbrellas and stuff like that. And that's hard to do at a football game, so you got to, <laughs> so you've got to get something that's real portable, like, uh. Bourbon and Coke, but uh, anyway, I went through that. I, all of it was a total humiliating experience, and I swear my whole story is just one humiliating experience after another. And because um, I couldn't, I mean, I was throwing up everywhere. It's hard. It's really hard to maintain your composure when you're vomiting. It's just. Uh, it's just, and I mean, it really is. It's, it's tough. And I, I was living in Mississippi. And you were supposed to be, I was trying to be a debutante. Did they know about debutante? in Cincinnati? But they had, down in Mississippi, they did. And um, it's not cool to be, you know, it's just not, well, it's not cool, isn't the word. It's not gracious to be to be ill and so on. But, I mean, I've shown up in uh, lots of different places. and. Uh, <laughs> I came to AA. I wanted to quit throwing up. Yeah. Most people come to quit drinking, but I just come to quit throwing up. Um, the um, well, funny, it's so silly. The um, but you know, I never drank every day. I never drank every day. I was basically a weekend binge drinker. And again, like I said, I couldn't hold it, so I really didn't drink too much because I just couldn't. Just couldn't keep it down, and um, but I kept trying. I really gave it a good try. I must all know this, that I tried really hard for 20 years to figure out how to do it, and I never did, and um, it got, it became a problem um, after I, um, I mean, it wasn't bad in Mississippi because we were having prohibition. So at the time. We were the last state in the Union to um, make Alcohol illegal. I mean, they call alcohol legal, so needless to say, anybody could get it. Uh, it didn't matter how old you were. If you could reach the bootlegger's window, you could get, mm-hmm. get something to drink and, uh, get some alcohol. And, uh, and we all drank as kids. And a lot of, uh, a lot of serious things about that. I mean, we had a huge number of kids die in wrecks car wrecks, driving in Mississippi drunk, and uh, of course we've got a lot of drunk people dri- driving drunk these days getting, getting killed, but as teenagers we had a high, high percentage of them, and uh it never I don't know why, it just never dawned on us not to drink, it was just a way of life, and uh, we did, the whole idea was to try like George said, trying to, that's a West Virginia thing, trying to drink like a gentleman we just tried to drink and not get in trouble, and um, we'd go water scan, and um, and, and just amazing all the things we did and all the risks we took and all the close, close calls really physically that we had. But um, I um, I went from Mississippi to, uh, went to school in Memphis, as I said before, went to um, undergraduate school there. I majored in accounting. And I was just really a boring thing to major. in. It's not bad once you get out working in it, but God, it's really boring when you're, when you're, and I went to school in three years, which is really, really stupid. One of the dumber things I ever did, I mean, you don't have any free time. You go, heavy load, I don't know why I did that, but, um yeah, like, you know, anything worth doing is worth overdoing, that whole thing. But um, um, I went, I wanted to get through, and I was in a hurry. I mean get get to so I can get out there and work God. and i wonder about being a stupid alcoholic, you know what I mean I wanted to do that so um and the thing about that I've seen about alcoholics, and I bet you all can uh confirm this is that we're a pretty talented crowd on the whole uh we really are we're smart, and we get away with all this stuff because we're smart. we can function at eighty five percent or at fifty percent and be usually better than the the most of the other people around, so we get away with it, which is so harmful, so harmful, because it takes so long for the consequences to develop, because we can get away with it for so long, and um, that was true for me. When I was always a new kid, um, since you didn't know me and you didn't like me, and I was new and having trouble fitting in. I couldn't join, so I beat you, And it wasn't hard. You know, how many kids do you know in elementary school that are really trying to make good grades? I mean, nobody does that in elementary school. And they don't really do too much. Back then, they didn't, didn't do it too much in high school. Now, my daughters, uh, you know, years later, were, they were in very competitive school systems. So, that people were doing it. Right. But back then, we weren't. We were just trying to drink and have a good time and that sort of thing. And the only way I fit in was was drinking. And um um uh, but worked real hard on beating them. And it wasn't hard to accomplish. So accomplishing was just part kinda of part of my life. So I, I went to school and did okay, did, did well in undergraduate school. Really did pretty well with all the drinking. I just think back on it now, God, how did I do that? But um so I got out of that and um married the high school sweetheart and uh and we began to move. He decided he wanted to go. He went one year as an accountant, and then he just—he also was an accountant. There's some—there's going to be a pattern developing here. You'll see that. And um, um, he went to graduate school in Colorado. and went out there to get his MBA. He went out—he chose Colorado because he liked to fish. I think thinking, that's probably not the best way to choose your graduate program, is where you want to fish, but what the heck. So he went out there, and I helped him get, to get his master's. I mean, I typed all his papers and wrote most of them. He had terrible grammar. He was real smart, but he had terrible grammar. I think he screwed up in the second or third grade and never quite got that part, you know. But anyway, so we did that, and... Um, he got his he's got his uh MBA and I started having children. I had um my daughter Laura and um she she's so beautiful. She's uh twenty seven today. And uh where we lived in Colorado by the way, uh we lived in Denver and then uh when he was in school and then we we got a house out in the suburbs and we lived in Littleton, Colorado. Columbine was not there then. But you can imagine my shock to hear that that happened in that little middle class. Everything's just perfect. If you want to pick a nice, safe place for your kids to go to school, that was it. So I was just—I was really shocked that that's where I had, where that had happened. And um, but anyway, went there, had a beautiful home, and and uh, which is kind of a history. Oh, by the way, Joe was real rich. And uh that was uh, a real nice part of that. I didn't know that, by honest God. I didn't know that before we got married. Uh, it was only after we got married when we started getting these gifts for the wedding of uh, entire tea sets and sterling silver and, and $500 checks from his uh, relatives. I thought, God, God, George, does your family have money? I'm George, excuse me, Joe. <laughs>
1: We've
0: done gone through that before. God... I didn't say that to George, by the way, because his family didn't have money. So. Uh, anyway, so we had a lot of money and um, uh, a lot of everything I ever wanted. I could have more than... I mean, my parents were were lower middle class. These people had a lot of money. And in the deep south and all that sort of thing going on down there. But um, anyway, we went to Memphis. And um, we went to school, and then we went out to Colorado, and we bought a house. And we were in a position of being able to get there where we wanted. So we had this nice little house out there, a really pretty home. And we had uh, our first daughter, Laura. And then not too long after that, uh, we moved in. And we moved from uh, Colorado to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Now, Chattanooga is where my parents lived. Now, they aren't from there. They're from, they're Kentuckians. They're both born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. And she's one of nine and he's one of six. And I have like, most ungodly number of cousins. And I don't even know, I don't even know them. We, we, since we didn't live there, we'd, we'd float through and we'd see mob the people I was related really to and then we'd pull us back out. So I didn't, I didn't have the sense of roots. Being, not being, uh, being a Navy brat, you don't have that sense of continuity in your life and that sense of I belong here and I'm part of this and I've been to school with these people since I was in kindergarten and and um, I'm okay because we're all okay because we've been together all this time and all that. I didn't have any of that and so I had a lot of insecurity about that and um, uh and it wasn't until I arrived in West Virginia surprisingly uh, that I began to have this feeling. But anyway... Um, so John and I moved to Chattanooga where I had my second daughter, Anna. And so now we've got two little kids and something happens. His mother died. Now his mother was extremely wealthy and so we inherited, we inherited, he inherited all this money. And so he decided something really brilliant. He's now he's worked, he's got this, uh, beautiful degree in financing and he had, he had undergraduate CPA with an MBA in finance. And his brother was a stockbroker and um lived in West Virginia. This is how we get to the West Virginia place. Anyway, so the two of them together, I think they inherited about almost about over half a million. They decided to take that money and make their fortune bigger by going into business in the construction business in uh West Virginia right before the big Crash in the construction (laughs) industry. Uh, I kept saying, wanting to say things like, you're a stockbroker, really successful, and you're wonderful at finance and accounting. Why do you want to do this? Why do you want to build houses? You don't know how to build houses. And their big thought was, we're so smart, we'll hire all the talent to do it. Which they did, which meant they had got no money themselves out of what they built, and managed to lose all of that money. Uh well I was really ticked with that. <laughs> you know. I um I kept thinking, why don't you at least put like fifty thousand in the bank and then blow up the rest, but he didn't do that So you just were I mean, really most amazing thing, just the most amazing thing. So we're by this time we've gone to Chattanooga. We moved from Chattanooga to West Virginia, which I didn't know where it was, but we found out and we got there and um they started this business and I was I was drinking a bit more at this time (laughs) more longer in this business and I was going but still never every day I don't think I was ever physically addicted to alcohol but hey I was emotionally really needed it and um, we they lost all that money and in the meantime they started this business I'm going to go back just a bit and Agnes came in as our secretary and Agnes was really pushy I mean, she was really pushy. She pushed me around. And she's, I mean, I'm her boss, and she's pushing me around. And, and him, you know, we, I guess we just weren't real assertive. And, um, and Agnes was very assertive. And, um, about six months into her working there, she, she asked me, we were doing accounting work in addition to this, because I had, I had gotten a degree in accounting at the time. So, um, she said, I need, I need to tell you something. Will you come to lunch with me? Well, we did. And, uh, she handed me this little chip, this medallion. And she said, it had a one on it. Well, she had been a year sober. And they were wanting to start a, and I didn't know what Alcoholics Anonymous was. I mean, how can this be possible? You can't imagine how many drugs there were in the family. I guess because we didn't live, live real close. I mean, we just heard little vague things like, gee, Aunt Pegs, just took a bath in her clothes, haha. And um or Uncle Uncle um Gene is on the roof. Dancing on the roof. I mean I mean this I'm not making that up. That's really true. And but they never ever mentioned that there was this thing called a disease called alcoholism. So I had no no concept of it. And um anyway so Agnes shows me your tip, and she says, they want to start uh, a club, a serenity club in um, down in Dunbar, and they need someone to do a 501 c 3 box, a tax event following. So, I said, well, I've never done one, but I'll, you know, I'll see what I can do. I'll look into it and so find out what it's about. And it was, um, a 501C3 is real pretty simple. It's just real informative in nature, you know. They ask questions like, how are you organized? And, um, so I had to read about, I had to read literature about AA, and the more I read, I read the 12 steps. And I thought, God, that's a beautiful program for those people.
1: <laughs> Isn't that
0: wonderful? It sounds so wonderful. And I just was immediately drawn to the, I think, of the uplifting spirituality of, of the literature that i would read. But it was a little bit difficult to answer some of those really technical questions because we aren't organized. We're just sort of, you know, we just kind of hang together. I mean, how do you put that on paper? But we, but, um, you know, trusted service and all that. But I learned that lingo. and I learned how to figure out how to answer those questions. And I had this, was, um, rough dress were done, and the people that were, the people who were organizing this came to my office. And, um, you know, I just don't know what to expect when you're expecting about six of those out, those people in your office. And uh, God knows what they were going to look like. I had no idea. Um, so sort of the idea of tails and horns and stuff kind of comes to mind. But they were the most beautiful. Um, that was my first acquaintance with uh, people in this program. They were the most beautiful people. And they um, the only thing is they smoked a lot and drank a lot of coffee. I remember that. <laughs> So we got that done and the, uh, Serendi Club got their 501c3 and they got their taxi sim status and they went into business. And, um, and that's still, Surrender Club's still in Dunbar, West Virginia and they, uh, have made a grand contribution to, 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 uh, recovery in our area. And I'm still today, I mean that's where I started. And which wasn't long after I did this taxi sim. And I love what God does. God didn't didn't um just drag me in there um off the streets. He was just really very gracious, you know, like a nice southern gentleman. He told me, Let me learn all about AA through my work in an extremely non threatening way. And um since I'm really scared all the time and um particularly then when I was still drinking, I um uh, let me learn about it in a way that I could take it into my heart. And then a few months later, when I came home, and uh, one more time, I'd been in some kind of board meeting for something, and I came home, and I, was so, I had been really, really way too much ahead. I came home, and I had a fifth on the... I discovered the next morning a fifth on the seat in my car. And I didn't know how I got home, and I didn't know what that was doing there. And... um but I again, all these problems with with the business, and it was, things were getting really crummy at home because of that, and just generally. And uh, I called up Agnes, and of the people, and I said, I can't take it anymore. And I didn't know why I called her. I mean, I wasn't thinking I can't drink anymore. I just think I can't take life anymore. I just hate this. And to tell you truth, I never thought drinking was a problem. Again, like I said, I never never drank every day. Didn't lose my family, didn't lose the car, didn't lose the house, didn't lose the job, didn't lose anything except as I later learned myself. And I didn't like myself too much anyway at that time. I had I had real bad self esteem. My self esteem was just in the gutter. And um but the thing that really I really, really wanted when I came here was um to be a good mother. I had two, the one, two precious things in my life were my daughters. They were four and eight when I came to AA. And um, Agnes Agnes made me go to a meeting Monday. I thought I'd just hit the blue by Monday time. Monday came around, but I tell you, she's pushy. She dragged me. (laughs) And we went. And I would never have gone on my own. I had too much of a chicken. I would never have gotten up and gone to a meeting with total strangers particularly for those people. Uh, I would never have done that on my own. So she took me to my first meeting, and everybody sat around there at the Edgewood meeting, and they said, I'm so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. And it got around to me, and I was trying to hide in the corner. And But you know, us new people can't stand out. You know, people notice you right away. You don't realize that when you're there, but uh, they notice you right away, and she called on me, and I said, I'm Suzanne, and I don't know what I am. And the truth is, I did not know what an alcoholic was had no idea and like I said I thought drinking was not the problem Uh, it didn't seem to be with all those other things in my life him losing the money um in fact we couldn't get along and a bunch of other other lists of outside influences that I'm sure if we could have gotten that sort of straightened around we'd all be okay but um it didn't it didn't work that way and um So, But I came to AA and I walked in that room. And after I said, I don't know what I am, and they closed the meeting, everybody started coming up to me. And as we do here, in this wonderful, blessed program, we open our arms to each other. And we say, oh, it's so wonderful to see you. And you know they mean it. You really know they mean it. And for the first time in my life, I really felt immediately, with a group of strangers that I fit in. I had no idea why I felt that way. But I was going to come back because I liked it. I liked that. I wanted to continue to have that sense of whatever was happening. And this isn't even a rational thought. It's just like, you know, of course, Agnes already had a list. It's like, we're going here tomorrow in this place. but she's already going to drag me around everywhere. Anyways, I was happy to go because I found something I must have really, really needed. Uh, I know I needed, and um, I still need today, but, um so we would, I began then to come to these meetings, and to begin to learn about what was going on in my life, but I had a real problem in the beginning, the biggest problem was I heard stories, horror stories, and they were things like, where, I, you know, people had, had been, um, had to go to jail for, for, what had happened? Maybe with, with uh, their drinking, and they had lost their families, and many people had lost their children. Oh, what a horror story! That would be what a horrible thing. They lost their kids. They lost their business. They they've been living under a bridge and just, just horrible circumstances. And I thought, and those are that's what I heard. I mean, there were other people there saying different things, but those are the things, the shocking things that came to my mind. Is that this is. I'm still trying to find out what an alcoholic is. This is an alcoholic. And I to God, my first thought was I I don't qualify. Those things haven't happened to me. Maybe I'm not an alcoholic. I mean, can't imagine that. Gee, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. Um, that's a little that's a little bizarre. If you think about it, if you really sit down and think about it, but for some reason, I well, don't we know what reason, what the reason is, but I wanted to be here and I wanted to be a part of it. So it was a journey for me to see where I fit in to alcoholism or how it was, in, how I actually had the disease. So I had to learn about the disease concept and I had to learn a wonderful man, uh, John M., uh, just a little character. I met and uh, when I then started going to the trinity club, which was available then, now that we'd gotten the tax exam for it and everything. He helped me. He would, he would, uh, he would, we'd talk afterwards. And he explained something really important to me. And if you're new and just getting started and maybe you don't have the normal story, maybe your story's more like mine. He said, it's like an elevator. He said, and the elevator only goes one way, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. He said, it goes down. And he said, but you can get off anywhere you want. You can get off this place. You don't have to have done it. All those things are, had, all those things happen to you for you to have the disease of alcoholism and to find recovery here. And John is such a, such a sweet friend and became a wonderful friend after that. But that was so helpful to me because I, I learned two things. I probably really am an alcoholic, which means I can be here and belong here. And most importantly, that if I get back on that elevator, it'll go down. And down there is where all those other, Really horrible things will happen. But I, I mean, I, it's not to say I didn't suffer. Uh, I've had a real, real time, um, gaining emotional sobriety has been a particularly difficult thing for me. And, um, anyway, so I stayed with John and John really helped me a lot with that. I, um, was, I had, like I said, just walked up, walked into them. and didn't go to treatment or anything. But about 14 months I started getting really sick. And, um, having some kind of panic attacks. I heard somebody the other day, I think it was a lady in Ireland talk, gave this talk about it, and she was talking about having panic attacks. In fact, I identified with everything that woman said here in this other country, talking that it's the exact same, we have the exact same stories. all of us do. And um, so I went to, I went out, a friend of mine, her name is Suzanne, said, have you been to treatment? And I said, no, but I haven't. I haven't started drinking again. She said, whatever's wrong with you is your alcoholism. And what she meant by that only took me about a year and a half to figure that out. She said, what that means is that whatever's wrong with me, a solution is available to the 12 Steps of this program, no matter what the problem. And it doesn't have to just be not taking a drink. It can be not, um, it can be dealing with anything. Or anybody in your life. The steps I have to work on everything. time I'm uncomfortable with life, I can approach it by, okay, step one. What can I do? You know, am I perilous over this? If it's a problem, I'm always paralyzed over it. You know, it wouldn't be a problem if I could do anything about it.
1: <laughs> so it's not hard to figure out. And, um,
0: and it's making me crazy. That's step two. And then step three. Oh my God, step three has been the most wonderful thing in my whole life. Well, you know what you do, you have to turn your will and your life over to a power. Well God, that's God. I mean, I'm a raised Catholic, there I mentioned that letter of the CIA, Catholic Irish alcoholic, you know. And um, so I I had that problem with God. Because I'm, I i i don't know many Catholics who grew up thinking God is this loving, wonderful thing. Most people grew up thinking they were like the nuns. Punishing, you know, you're going to get it. No matter what you, if you if you don't fly right, you're going to get it. And uh, so I had trouble with that. And that was a struggle for me in the first few months. Um, I began, I really grasped onto the powerlessness, the idea of powerlessness. I was really relieved because, boy, I was tired. I wasn't getting it. I couldn't fix everything or be everything to everybody. And I was really worn out with that. So I began to, I understood that. But that's a little scary if you think, oh, God, you know, if I can't really rely on myself, what do I do? And I can't rely on God because I'm not good enough to do that, you know. So what do I do? You're really in the middle of nowhere. Well, I talked to, of course, you come, keep coming to me. You always got to keep coming to me. And uh, I met some women who were in OA. And they used to come to open meetings at the club on the weekends. And it turned out that I had a lady, to a very long story, she says <laughs> this woman. I had, by the way, kicked my husband out at this point and or he had left, and so I had room in the house. And uh, Mary came and lived with me for a while because she was separated from her husband at the time. And she was a member of OA. She was a Jewish member of OA. And she taught my daughters all about... uh the whole Jewish tradition of Hanukkah and, uh, the lighting of the candles and, and it was beautiful. I'm so delighted that they, that we all got to enjoy, uh, uh her faith and the way she practiced her faith. And, but her faith did not interfere with her finding relief through a program, uh, uh our same program of recovery in, uh, Overeaters Anonymous. And she had some friends come over one time. And they were all talking about their higher power and God as they understood them. And um one girl said, Suzanne, you, I, you know, I had mentioned something I was having a problem with and she said, you, describe your, describe your um, concept of God. Well, I had the old traditional, oh, he's punishing God, I'm gonna go to hell, he's gonna get me, all of that. She said, well, she said, I think you better work on getting a different one. She said, because you need somebody that you can turn all this over to. And I thought, well, I said, God has been right with that. I didn't think you have a choice. And she said, That's what we mean. God is we understood. Understand Him. Close your eyes and just picture the most wonderful. Just pretend, you know, and just imagine whatever the most wonderful power power you could have. Listen, okay, well, immediately I saw this vision of Jesus Christ superstar.
1: Remember him?
0: You remember him? In the, and it kind of looked like that God as uh, in the Bible with the little kids, and what, that perception to me is what Jesus Christ Superstar looked like with the long hair and the white gown and and all of that. And the thought that came to me was that little thing in the, in the Bible because I'm Catholic, so I never read the Bible, but I did see the picture in there, and um, of all the little children coming up to him and sitting on his knees, and I thought. Ah, oh, If I could have a higher power that would not criticize me, whose job was to be my friend and had the power to be my friend and to help me and would lift me up when I fell down, pick me up and brush me off like, you know, like your parents would do when you fell down, they'd pick you up and put you on the lap, and say, it's all okay and then push you out there to go again. That's the kind of higher power, power I wanted. And that's that kind of higher power I could turn my will and my life over to with complete abandon. And I would never, ever be alone, no matter what. And um, who was it said one time, George, you know, uh, at some conference he went to, because he comes home and tells me all this stuff, and he said, Uh, you can't piss God off. What a wonderful thing to know. You know, you can't busy long. And that's terrific. That's terrific news. So that I, once I found the joy of a higher power that I could embrace and that I knew was taking care of me, I was on the, on the road. And uh, uh, somewhere along the line, and in the first three years of sobriety, I thought, well, I'm getting this divorce, and I'm going to have to take care of these children because... This Joe that I was married to has now lost all his money and is just not helping at all. And I couldn't really depend on him to, to help us. He was just, uh, had gotten into a bit of a slump. And, and, uh, but to tell you the truth about Joe is Joe was, uh, I loved him and he was my, my high school sweetheart, but we just, I couldn't live with him and be sober. Not that he drank so much in it, you know. I mean, we, when I came to the program, we immediately got rid of all the stuff. It's just that emotionally, I couldn't tolerate it. I couldn't be in that relationship and be sober. And oh, actually, and not drink. I had realized I had to drink to stand it. And, um so I, they said you can't do anything for the, for the first year. So, uh, 36 days into my, 366 days into my sobriety. I told George, Joe, George, no, I wanted a divorce. And, uh, we began that, that thing. And then I went off to treatment and when I came home, he was gone and I had left the house. And, uh, I was really relieved, but then I had these children I needed to take care of. And so I thought, well, I can't do this on, on accountant salary. Um, I better go to, back to school. So I thought, I'll just go to law school. And 'cause they make so much money those lawyers do. And
1: um and
0: and I have to you know, I have to work so much as an accountant. I think this would be better and I'll make more money and um so then I applied and got in and all that and um for the thing with being a lawyer is like, Let's jump in from the frying pan into the fire. Talk about a lot more hours and sometimes less money. So it's uh wasn't all that great of a decision, but it was a wonderful um it was a wonderful thing. All I had to do was convince my father that uh, my first case I won was with my dad, so that he would pay for all of this. <laughs> and he did. My father, um, my father sent me uh, back to law school and paid for uh, apartments for my my daughter and I, and took care of us. And um, uh, so, at the age of 40, I uh, graduated from law school with two children. I was the grandma of the class, and I remember when I went to law school and I thought, oh, God, these kids are all young, and they don't have kids, and they're also smart, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep up, because I really have memory loss. I mean, I had typical alcoholic memory loss, and um, how am I going to be able to keep up with this, and I uh, was so worried, so afraid, I, was just, I just couldn't do it, and... The first semester was just hell. I mean, it was just everybody really studies the first semester in law school, and, and at the end, you, it all kind of strains. You figure out if you're gonna. After the first semester, I realized I'm not going to be in the top. I'm not going to be the top person in this class, so I decided to relax. And also met an all-school girl whose name also was Suzanne. I don't think that's a strange. Third Suzanne, and she said she was in AA and she was a year ahead of me, and she did leave the class. She was number one in that law school class, and she was about my age, a little bit, by about my age, and she had a son, and I had not met her before I got there, but she introduced herself, and she said, you only need to remember three things. She said, Suzanne, uh, go to the classes, and read the books, and don't drink, and you'll make it. She said, "Your obsessive-compulsive alcoholics Always do well in law school, and she was right. We did. But you know what also happened to me in law school? I'm most rigid. Uh, law school is very hard, and um, or it was for me. And uh, a lot of studying, a lot of reading. And I learned to do something then that was so wonderful. I learned to take it a day at a time. I really learned to live a day at a time. So I want you to know I enjoyed every day of law school. I loved it. I had a chance to, I had wonderful rapport with my teachers. Uh, I'm older, and they're older, so we all kind of got along, you know. And all these other kids that I thought were definitely going to beat me out of this whole thing, I wasn't ever going to, you know, they're all out wanting to get drunk and get laid. And I thought, what an advantage I had over these kids. Plus, <laughs> like, you know, some if any of them, you ladies are thinking about going back to school. I learned a lot of stuff I didn't even know I knew. I didn't know I was learning these things. Mm-hmm. And uh just life, and just being alive and around and alert and... You learn a lot of stuff, and it comes and it comes in so handy so anyway, three years this Friday, Laura and Ann and I got in the car, and off we went to Morgantown to go to law school and had a wonderful uh a wonderful experience there. We all had our own first day at school, so we were all nervous wrecks. And Anna was in the third grade, and, uh, Laura was in, in junior high, in seventh grade. And I was in school, and, and law school. And so, like I said, we all had to be this, but they were wonderful. And my daughters were wonderful. And, um I, um I found out, however, that, um I was a rageaholic, like my father. And when I quit drinking, I had nothing to dampen it down, and so I mean there was lots of screaming and yelling when I went through uh, when I went through school, which I regret. I have a lot of regrets about things that have happened. Some regrets about things that have happened since I got sober. I've had a lot of things happen to me in sobriety. Um, one of the most wonderful and important things that has happened to me is that after that first year of law school, I married this uh, man that I met in the program. And uh he was not boring.
1: <laughs>
0: uh I think y'all can tell I have I kinda overcorrected on that. The boring thing. And we fought a lot. We fought a whole lot those first few years. I guess maybe two stubborn Irish alcoholics lawyers have got a real challenge to find a way to meet somewhere in the middle. And, uh, but, um, i to say this without crying, um, what a gift. What a tremendous gift. And I never knew at the time how wonderful it would be. All the things I'd ever dreamed of in a relationship with a man, Prince Charming, all those things, I found in, uh, with George. And, uh. He has been there for me so much. We just went to Ireland and uh, didn't have my story a little bit. But obviously, you can tell I have MS and I have problems. And uh, with 17 days, we went all over Ireland and uh little things. I couldn't get in the tubs because they're real steep. So to get in it, I mean, he had to help me in the tub. Help me get settled. Help the water go, and then get me out after my shower. Help me dress. He uh, helps me walk. He uh, he keeps my spirits up. And uh, you know, one day that we were in one of these meetings in um, Ireland. They they often they the way they do their meetings. They'll have two people cheering, one person sort of running the show, and another person to come and give a short, like a little mini lead. And George has asked several times, he's um, kind of an imposing character so like, they said this yank coming in, they wanna yeah, they wanted to help. So about three or four times he actually helped the chair. And this last time we were in West Westport, kind of uh second to last night in Ireland. And he would he help the chair and told his story. They're so wonderful over there. I say, Ah, oh, George, it was just lovely listening to you up there. And, just, and they're so majestic in their language. It's just grand, it's just grand to see you are I mean, they have had this this wonderful way of expressing themselves. And um this one girl was sitting right next to me and she's about twenty five probably and she she said she was telling me about something she was working next. She said, I gotta get a sponsor. I mean the same stuff we hear here and um And then she looked at George and she said, you know, it's so wonderful to look at that with all those years, 20 years of sobriety, and that big white beard, and a Mickey Mouse watch. (laughs) And she said, the hope, she said, that gives me so much hope that I can, and that's what's uh, what's really happened to me in Alcoholics Anonymous, is I found so much hope every day. And you all do it for me. I am... um I never know what I'm gonna say when I get up here and I um there's a lot of things I'd like to say and I run out of time but um I I wanna tell you about the MS. Um the um uh, I got out graduated from law school and the next year I was diagnosed with MS. Well I felt like that was a pretty crappy deal. I said, look, God, I've already got this one disease, this one biggie, the big A. You know, I've got the alcoholism. Um, I really felt, I felt real cheated, And, um, but I learned from, remember my my sponsor, Betsy, she helped me a lot with that. And she helped me over the years. In the beginning, I wasn't, I wasn't nearly as sick as I am now. I mean, I could function. I just had... I could feel certain problems, like weaknesses coming and that sort of thing. But I was still pretty functional, and I actually got to practice law for about 10 years, full time. I don't think you ever quit. I don't know how you ever quit. I'm trying to, but I'm not doing such a hot job. We have our office in our home now, and George and I have uh, been practicing together. I had a dream come true there. George has been practicing um, trial law for over 40 years, and it's magnificent. I mean, if anybody all heard him last night, you can imagine him making an argument before a jury. He's wonderful and, uh, compassionate man, uh, helps so many people that are ill and need someone. I have watched him help people, um, so many times. And, um, it's just absolute marvelous thing to see, to watch somebody, watch him take someone's life, someone who has done some hard things, maybe, and help them figure a way to uh reconcile it and get the help they need and make the appropriate plea and work on sentencing There's not been any try to get somebody off on a technicality that's been how can we help this person through this particular problem if it's a criminal action or um, we often work we work with a lot of people who have been injured and um, this program is wonderful there and um that love and care that that we learn to share to each other we can share in our work anyway i um was diagnosed with ms and um have a, had such really it sounds silly wonderful experiences because I have ms I was always aloof and very shy, and um so when you know when you're like that you tend to be you tend to push people away. Or sort of just put up a wall where you're, where you're, you're not real warm and because you don't want to get rejected and you're and you, you don't want people to ignore you or whatever it is. If you have that sense of uh, sense about you, but MS has done something for me. Um, for some reason, when you when you need help, obviously need help physically, people will just come up to you and put their arm around you and help you. They don't ask if they can do. anything. they just are there. And um, I learned so, so fast that here, I mean, uh, at this conference we did up in California, people, I mean, they just had their arms out the whole time. People have offered me help constantly. And um, I learned that uh, with you, I can just, I mean, I can't walk from here to there without you, but with you I can. And, And that's been so true in so many ways with the MS. I mean, can you imagine? to have those things happen and um find a way to be grateful. I mean I'm not grateful all the time, but I have a lot of moments of seeing where there's some some purpose in that in my life. And believe me, working with injured people, God, we've got a rapport. I understand. I understand what's happening to them. And um uh, I um uh, that's been a gift in itself uh, I'm now surrounded by people that I can love and that love me uh, I'll tell you about my daughters very quickly Laura's the old one and she um... I remember the first time I really noticed something was wrong I tried to pick up a full coffee pot of Mr. Mr. Coffee Pot and my hand just really shook like this because the muscles were weak And I looked at her, and I said, she was sitting in there at the kitchen table, and I said, would you look at that, damn it. I can't even pour a cup of coffee. And Laura says, Mom, now, MS isn't all that bad. And I said, well, you just tell me one good thing about MS. Just tell me one good thing. This is like in the beginning. So sweet little Laura. She's about 14 or 15 then. And she thinks, and she thinks, and she says, now you're one of Jerry's kids.
1: <laughs> I didn't
0: have the heart to tell her that's muscular, muscular dystrophy. But my children have been so wonderful. In my vulnerability, they have, they have, I don't have to be strong anymore because I can't. Uh And they're so good to me. So good to me. We went through all those teenage years and was just hating each other and kicking and fighting and uh, But we've gotten through it. Mm-hmm. We've gotten through it. And um my daughter, um I don't think want anyone... to... <laughs> I got time. I'll tell you one more thing real quick. <laughs> um I I have all these humiliating I can tell you stories of all the humiliating experience in my life, but and I like, kind of can think that's gonna be over when you quit drinking and, and it can be a lady, <laughs> and a part of the time and um uh we had a really funny experience in Ca- uh, California. And uh California sorry. Ireland, excuse me. And um we went to this meeting with MS you end up with a really weak bladder. So you always have to be check out where are the bathrooms, you know, and they, especially if they serve tea, you know, and they really cook like, his drink the tea and you know how diuretic tea is. And so, um, uh, like I said, always kind of check out where the bathrooms are. So we went to this meeting in, um, in, in Blarney, you know, where Blarney Castle is. Mm-hmm. I don't let him kiss the Blarney stone anymore. He's done it twice. And I think that's. Enough um, the um uh, so we went to this meeting, and it was in a like an old community center and down a huge flight of stairs, and we went in they were teaching karate, I didn't expect to see karate lessons being taught in Ireland, but they're I guess they're just as modern as anywhere else, so we went down went soon you go in, they go downstairs, they knew if we're wandering around, that's what we must want, so I went down and down in the basement of this place is this um meeting room, and uh as you a very small room and it's packed with these guys and one woman over in the corner and these Irish men and um you know, I like said they're all they're really shy and, and sort of retiring and um uh don't don't always reveal themselves you know right away. So just, you, in the beginning you just kinda you have to ease into a meeting like that and let them get to know you. Well, about it was running over the will Run a long time, so it was sort of but now over an hour later, I need to use the restroom. So I kinda of quietly got up and I was gonna go outside to use the restroom. Well now at this point, I mean I need to use the restroom. It was an emergency. And um I love Peggy's description of that. Not I have to go to the bathroom but oh excuse me.
1: <laughs> that was so funny. I never forget that.
0: And anyway so I, I Went outside, and the man that was sitting next to me kind of followed me out and he said, can, can I help you? And I said, I was looking for the toilet. They don't call them restrooms there, they call them toilets. Mm-hmm. And um, I looking for the toilet. And he said, Oh, it's in the room. I said, The meeting room, which wasn't very big. He said, Yeah, it's right back there. And he pointed to the thing I thought was a closet, closet door. And uh well I haven't gotten a choice now. I mean it's like like I said, it's either the floor or the room. And um so I thought, Oh God, that's terrible. I wanted to leave. But anyway I got- I walked back in and all these guys had gone up and moved all their chairs over so that I could then go in this little room and I'm I'm so I'm going, What am I gonna do? I can't do this and I thought I gotta do this So I went in I went into this room and I closed the door and I went Oh my god. Oh my They're all
1: gonna hear me going to the bathroom <laughs> And um
0: and so I thought, Oh, I'll just flush the toilet while I'm doing this and so they kinda of covered it. But then I thought they all heard me flushing the toilet, you know? Oh God, so I had to get up and go out and then these these kind, sweet, gentle Irishmen just moved everything back, got out of the way again, helped me back to my seat in this Continued on with the meeting, and I thought, that's the most embarrassing experience I have ever had.
1: <laughs>
0: and I, I laughed at my kids, and I'm telling Laura this. Uh, when we got home, I talked to her on the phone. I said, You will not believe what happened to me in the meeting. So I'm telling her that, and she says, Laura style, Well, Mom, you could have had to go number two and had a lot of gas. <laughs> and she said they'd have offered that, and I went, Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> always telling me that things are going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> always. What a wonderful child. Where did she get that? You know, I don't know where she got that. And my youngest daughter went off to college. Brilliant. Brilliant daughter. And she went off to, um, she was, uh she's got an operatic voice. She plays the flute. She was in, in our local ballet. And just a real overachiever. Went off to school the first year. Discovered pot, quit that school. Then went off to Boston and discovered hard drugs. And um, for some ungodly reason, she after a year, she's come home and she's she's okay. For some reason, it didn't take for her. But she had a struggle getting adjusted and all that. But she's back now, and she's uh, she's just the light of my life. The thing I really wanted when I came here to be a good mother. That happened for me. Not only am I a good mother, I'm a good friend. And they are wonderful teachers for me. They've expanded my concept of God to the universe. Just as you have in your little thing that you read, your, your, your statement. You say we are now parts of the universe and we walk through the universe together. My concept of God is so much bigger. God is everywhere. God is in the trees and the earth and every single person in this room. And see, I guess we did it. Did we do it? Thank you all so much for having us here. Thank you.